Before I begin my message today, I need to ask everyone here at New Life a favor, all right? Can you please take out your phone real quick? I know, you usually don't get asked to do this. You're like, what is going on? Take out your phone, open up your web browser, because I want you to fill out a survey right now for me, all right? We call it the Church Satisfaction Survey. The link is on the screen here. It's just newlifeca.church slash survey, and take that for me uh, as quickly as you can. What we're looking for you to do is to rate your worship experience, all right? Everything from the style of music to the comfort of the seats to your parking lot experience, the quality of the teaching, we just want to make sure that you're happy with your worship experience here, all right? So go ahead right now and fill that out, at that survey, and that would be really, really helpful to us, all right? Uh, some of you guys are, you're getting your phones out now, and you're going on our website. <laughs> Others of you know, this ain't going to happen. And you're probably actually fairly impressed that I put in the work to put a fake survey on our website this week just for a little sermon illustration. And you're filling that out, and you're realizing there's one question on that church survey there, and it's, did you actually think that this was a real survey? And yes, you can submit that survey, but it'll tell you to just start paying attention to the message again, all right? There, there's no such thing as a church satisfaction survey, right? We're not checking on the happiness of the customers, because you're not customers, right? We're family. In other businesses, though, like when we go to stores and restaurants, oftentimes there's going to be customer service forms, right, where you can rate your happiness with the service that you've received. How many of you guys, by a show of hands real quick, have ever filled out, like, a customer satisfaction survey before? Anyone? Anyone, like, when you're at, like, KFC, A&W, and you're like, please, let me be the sweepstakes winner this week. I want a 1000 bucks. I don't think anyone ever wins that. We just never talk about it, right? Yeah. I don't know. But it's just kind of normal in our culture, right, rating our experience, especially because we're spending our hard-earned money on things, and, and by golly, we should be happy about it, right? It should, it should satisfy us. We need to be catered to. After all, and I think you're going to know this because you're going to finish this statement, the customer is always right. We know that as a culture, right? I don't think any one of us can tell where we learn that from, right? Like, it's not necessarily something that your parents are gonna teach you, right? Your parents are gonna be like, listen, kid, there's one lesson I want you to learn your entire life, and it's this. The customer is always right. And your parents don't tell you that, but it's something that we learn, right? It's just something that we say. And, um, oh, you know what? I just noticed my kid's got something on my shirt here. Um, sorry, give me one second. I'm gonna take this one off. Don't worry, I got an undershirt on. Don't just... Kids, how many of you guys know that if it wasn't for kids, we wouldn't need washers and dryers? You know what I'm saying? Okay, there we go. My goodness. Okay, there we go. That's much better. That's much better. Okay, so this morning, what is there? Oh yeah, this shirt. Yeah, yes, I, I bought this shirt just for this little illustration here. I'm all about putting everything into a sermon, right? You, guys, you guys are going to remember this, right? And I did. I checked. Unless there's any new people in here named Karen, we didn't have anyone named Karen in our database. So please don't be offended. Um, it's just a joke. It's, we had a Carol last night, and she started to grab her pitchfork, and I was scared. I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, but this is kind of the mindset we've developed, right? Right. When something's wrong, what do you say? I want to speak to the manager, right? Let's see if you guys know these scenarios. You've probably been in them before, right? If my steak isn't cooked right, I will send it back. See, look at this. Do we ever talk about this stuff? Where do we learn this stuff? But we all know it, right? If the service isn't right, I want to talk to the manager. You got it. If the dry cleaner isn't cleaning my clothes correctly, I'm going to switch 
cleaners. You got it. We're going to go down the road, which honestly, I get all of those things. I get it. I mean, me and my wife, we don't go to fancy dinners very often, but every Tuesday night we have set aside as our weekly date night. Every single week we take a date and we just do it because we know it's important for the health of our marriage. And I don't think we've done it our whole marriage. There's been weeks we haven't done it, but we're very, very consistent with it. It's my favorite part of the week. Uh, because one, I get to spend time with Trin, and two, I don't get to spend time with the kids. All right, that, I'm just going to say it. I'm just saying what everyone is thinking, all right? We're just being real. Just being real. But a couple weeks ago, we decided to kind of splurge, and we, we drove through the traffic uh, at night to Modesto, and we went to a great restaurant called Texas Roadhouse. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone a fan of Texas Roadhouse? I love Roadhouse. If you aren't a fan, that means you haven't been there and you haven't lived until you've been there, all right? You don't even have to order any food. Just eat their rolls, baby. Just eat them that cinnamon butter. I know I'm preaching to someone today, and it's, it's at least I'm preaching to myself right now. And I haven't eaten lunch. It's almost lunchtime. I shouldn't be talking about food, but here we are. And so we went to Texas Roadhouse, right? And I, I am really particular about my food, right, Trin? Just really particular. I always get the most expensive thing on the menu. That's not true. I, uh, when I go to Roadhouse, I'm going to offend some people in the room right now. I get a bacon cheeseburger. I go to a steakhouse, and I get a bacon cheeseburger, and I'm going to offend some more people. I order that puppy plain. I don't want nothing on it. I want the meat and the cheese and the bun. That's it. And I say that every single time because there are some servers that don't get it, and there are some restaurants that still put that pickle on that plate when I've asked for nothing else, and those juices can't be unsaturated. You know what I'm saying? I never ask not for the pickle because my wife likes the pickle, right? So I'll eat that bite of nasty bun that's been saturated by that pickle so she can enjoy that pickle, but I don't like it. So I get a cheeseburger at Texas Roadhouse. I get it plain, but they always get mine, right? Right? And they just, they always do. And so I never really send mine back, and I'm not a really, I, I hate confrontation, right? So if something's wrong with my burger, unless there's like an egregious amount of sauce on it, I just, I won't send it back. I just, I don't like doing that. But my wife... She has a, a higher taste for things. Um, the reason our bill is so high at Texas Roadhouse ain't because of that bacon cheeseburger. Let me tell you that. I'm just going to tell you that. It's because of the, uh, the fine Dallas filet that she gets. Yeah, yeah. If you go to Texas, you know. You know. It's, it's the filet of all filets, right? And um, she orders it medium because she likes a little bit of flavor in it, right? I'm a, I'm a medium well-done guy because I don't want it to be alive in the back. I want, I want to make sure it's, it's, it's a goner. So she, she, orders it, she orders it medium, and it comes out how I would like it, medium well. It's a little too well done, and so she does what any normal person would do, right? And what is that? She calls the person over. She's like, I'm so sorry. This is a little overcooked. Can I get another steak uh, how I asked for it? Which is perfectly fine, right? The person was super apologetic. They brought it back. A few minutes later, they bring it back out. And I think there was a miscommunication because they cooked that same steak even longer. And uh, it it was beyond well done. If you know what I'm saying, that was like a brick right there. And like the server walked away and me and Trin like sat there and we're like, what do we, what, like what? Uh, we didn't know what to do. And so it's, we waited for her to come back and we're like, so sorry, it was already overcooked. So can we just get a whole new steak? And we sent it back and it came back just fine. We had a great rest of our date night. But 
How many of you guys have had a story like that before, right? We just, we get the steak wrong, we send it back, it makes sense, right? In fact, this reminds me of a story when, when me and Trin met up in Seattle, we were at college and her family lived away, and I was really attracted to this girl. I really wanted, by the way, she's my wife, right? And, um, and I wanted to date her, and so her family was visiting, the whole, her whole family for some reason was visiting uh, college one week, and uh, they decided to, they knew I wanted to ask this question, and they decided to take me out for dinner. They took me to Outback Steakhouse, which I love. Um, it's, it's a great place, and they thought I was a normal person, right? And so they figured that I was gonna order what at a steakhouse? A steak, right? And so, lo and behold, what do they find out that I order? A bacon cheeseburger, you got it. And Troy, which is Trin's dad, our lead pastor, was so impressed. He's like, this kid is conscious of our money. He doesn't want to order something really expensive. He's so respectful. And I was like, mm-hmm, yeah. And uh, I let him believe that for years until finally I locked the deal. And now he knows it's just because I get burgers wherever I go, right? Yeah, man, it stinks that you didn't do your, I say he didn't do his uh, due diligence, but uh, I gave him a form that's like, can I date your daughter that had all my legit information, including my like, social security and everything. And little did I know, his best friend at the time was a chief of police and he ran my social security number, make sure. And uh, how do you guys know, ain't nothing there if you don't get caught, right? Um, I'm from Montana, there ain't, ain't nothing I've done, right? Um, but in situations like that, when you send a steak back, when you're paying an incredible amount for it, it makes sense, right? But what happens is that we sometimes, sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, end up bringing that same mentality into the church. And we find ourselves asking questions in church like, are my opinions important? Are my preferences being catered to? Am I being noticed? Or another one um, that you've probably heard before is, am I being served? No, you probably haven't heard that one, right? Because no one's bold enough to say that, but people are bold enough to say, can I just be honest with everyone? People are bold enough to say, I'm just not getting fed there. If you said that before, sorry you're offended, but I'm really not sorry for saying it, right? I've heard it many, many times. I'm not trying to offend anyone, but I've just, I've heard it all. Am I being served? Which is kind of the opposite of the question that we should be asking as members of the church. It's not, am I being served, but it's, it's am I serving? Amen. Which is why one of the nine values here at New Life Church is we are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. We have it on a beautiful chalkboard out in the lobby. You pass it every time you come to the church. It's not just something that sounds good and it's beautiful because Trin did a great job with the chalk out there. It's something that we live our lives by. We are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers, but we find ourselves sometimes with the opposite of that value in church. You don't expect to see that kind of spirit in the church, but a lot of times you do. You know, it's not just the church though, right? We also see this in, of all places, the upper room with Jesus and the disciples, which is where we find ourselves in chapter 26 of the story this week. So in John 13, we step into the upper room of a house where Jesus is with his disciples. And it's, it's after sundown on a Thursday, um, and Jesus is he's down to the final hours of his life. So he doesn't have much time left with his disciples and 
He's been listening to them as they have been arguing amongst themselves. And you know what they've been arguing about? They're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Which one of them is the most important? It's a great argument to be having in front of the creator of the universe, right? Who has that like automatic trump card? Oh, you're, you're great, huh? Did you just speak and everything came to be? No, okay, right? And guess what, guess, this is crazy. This, is, this isn't the first time we've read about this argument happening between the disciples. This is actually the third time this same argument has popped up. And I think Jesus could not have been clearer when he was talking to them before the triumphal entry a little bit earlier on. I'm gonna read Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. It says this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. A little bit of an inflated ego, right? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. What did they want? They wanted recognition. They wanted authority. They wanted to look like they were in charge. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And this is where I picture my own kids. We can, right? Because your kids always think that they can do whatever it is, right? And you're like, the strongest man in the world couldn't even do that. But you know what? You want to try it, you go for it, buddy. I bet you you can lift the van, right? He's like, we can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Quick side thought. Be careful what you ask for God for. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And this is funny. When the 10 heard about this, the other 10 disciples, they became indignant with James and John. How many of you guys would be in the same boat, right? These two guys are asking Jesus, which one of us is the most important, right? Can we sit at your right hand? These other 10, they don't, don't worry about them, right? If I was the other 10, I'd be indignant too. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus says, look, the reason I've come is not to be served, but to serve, right? But this was, it was a lesson that the disciples had a hard time learning because very much like us, they lived in a world where things didn't necessarily work that way, right? This was backwards for them. Jesus taught that the first will become last and that if you wanna be great, then you have to become the servant of all. But that's not really the world that we live in, right? In the world that we live in, you don't turn the other cheek, you even the score. In the, in the world that we live in, you don't pray for your enemies, you defeat your enemies. In the world that we live in, if you wanna be first, you elbow and cut your way to the front of the line because in our world, the first will be first. 
And in a far world, if you want to be exalted, then you make sure that you're noticed and you step into the spotlight whenever possible because in our world, the exalted will be exalted. But Jesus, he was constantly showing that he came to be a servant. And he's calling us to that same kind of life. It's a, it's a type of attitude and a spirit that, that when we see it, it, it sticks out. And it's, it's often newsworthy when we see something like that. You know, I read an inspiring story a few months ago about a high school football game in Ohio. I didn't want to talk about football today, right? I was planning on gloating a little bit this morning when I wrote this message to you 49ers fans, but I'm going to back off, right? You guys have gloated enough for me. <laughs> so the story I read about was based on St. Clair's High School, and it, it looked like this game that they were in was really, it was locked up in the fourth quarter. There was really no switching who was going to win or anything. And so their star player was a guy named Michael Ferns, and get this, he's in high school. He was a six foot three. 235-pound, four-star recruit to Michigan. This guy was huge, big guy. And he ran the ball 52 yards down the left sideline, and he was getting ready to step into the end zone for what would be a touchdown. But just before he got there, he stepped out of bounds on the one-yard line. And the refs assumed that he had crossed the touchdown threshold line because there was no tackler around. It was just him, so they called it a touchdown. So Michael Ferns, he starts arguing with the refs. And the head coach of his team starts joining in too. They're hollering at the refs. It's not a touchdown. It's not a touchdown. And the refs, they have never seen anything like this, right? They are so confused. The kid and his coach are arguing against their own touchdown. Why would they do that? And so the refs really confusingly reversed the call and the team lined back up on the one-yard line. And a freshman on the team named Logan Thompson, who had never scored and who had never carried the ball and who had lost his dad to a sudden stroke two days earlier, lined up and scored a touchdown in the fourth quarter with minutes left in the game. And afterwards, the two players embraced. And a story like that in our culture is newsworthy, right? When we see that, when we hear those stories, we think, yeah, that is the way that life was supposed to be lived. That's the type of spirit that we're supposed to have. But if we're honest, we're oftentimes not that way. Isn't it true that sometimes we want to pad our stats? You know, we might have 14 touchdowns, but 15 would be better. And we're often concerned with being the greatest or the most important, kind of like the disciples, right? And so with less than 24 hours left and the clock ticking, Jesus had time for one more lesson. But this time, he doesn't use words. And how many of you guys know that sometimes the most powerful lessons you learn are when no one even has to say a word to you, right? He walks over and he picks up a towel and a wash basin, and the arguments over who's greatest begin to die down. And the room grows quiet as the status-seeking disciples quietly watch the creator of the entire universe the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, wash their dirty, smelly feet. John 13, four and five says this. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, most of you guys know this, but back in Jesus' day, that task, washing the feet, was reserved for the lowest of servants. 
There was no doubt that it needed to be done on this day because their tables weren't like our tables. They were very low to the ground. They were going to be sitting on the ground, kind of on their side with their stinky feet right next to the tabletop, right by the food. How many of you guys know that that is not good, right? If that happened at Texas Roadhouse, we'd send that steak right on back, right? And so it needed to be done, especially because back then they were walking on all these dusty, dirty trails. And it wasn't just humans walking on those trails. Animals did too. And animals don't have bathroom manners, right? They go where they want to go. And sometimes you step in it, right? And they didn't have the benefit of wearing closed-toed shoes like we do. Their feet were dirty. They were stinky. This had to be done. Their feet had to be washed, but it wasn't getting washed because that task was reserved for the lowest. Any one of those disciples could have done it, but none of them did because they were all thinking that someone else in the room was the better choice to wash the feet. So they were waiting for someone else to do it. And then Jesus volunteered. And when Jesus finished, he simply says to the disciples, continuing John 13, it says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus came to serve and he calls us to a life of service. And as the hour of darkness approaches, he wants to capitalize, underscore, and put in bold one lesson to his followers, one call, and that's a simple word that says serve. That's what he wants them to get in the final hours of his life, serve. Now I want you to notice that when we serve the way that Jesus did, it means that we don't discriminate in our service. You know, Jesus serves, but he didn't choose who he could serve based on their worthiness. He didn't serve based on what they could do for him in return. You see, Jesus is serving the disciples that he knows in a moment are going to betray him, abandon him, and deny him. He knows that. He washes the feet of Judas, who would lead the soldiers there for his arrest. Isn't it so hard to serve people like that? Right? How do you... How do you serve a husband who has never really been thoughtful of your needs? How do you serve a wife who has never had a kind word to say to you? How do you serve a child who never says thank you? How do you serve a father who constantly belittled you as you grew up? How do you serve a coworker who stabbed you in the back? How do you serve a friend who is always taking but never giving? So what we tend to do is we neatly fold up our towel and we put it in the drawer and we say, somebody else is going to have to do this for once. I think, I think you guys get it. I think you've been there before. I know I have. We sulk and we say, don't they know what I do around here? Until we finally say, fine, if that's the way it's going to be, I just won't do it anymore. And yet Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He didn't come to get paid back. He came to serve. He didn't come to be noticed. He came to serve. He didn't come to be recognized. He came to serve. He didn't come to be rewarded or elected or crowned. He came to be, he came to serve. 
And now he calls us to live that same kind of life. And he served people like Peter who would deny him three times and Thomas who would doubt him and Judas who would betray him. He served them all. And after he washed their feet, he served them a meal, which we now know is communion. And after the foot washing, after the Passover meal, and after the institution of the first communion, Jesus takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives where they sang a song and Jesus asked them to pray for him. And they went up to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was a favorite spot of Jesus's. And then we find in Matthew 26, verse 38 says, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And the Bible explains that Jesus was so deep and fervent into prayer that his sweat was like blood and that he was obviously in an epic tug of war between his flesh and his spirit, between pleasing himself and obeying his heavenly Father's will. And Matthew 26 goes on and it says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So now he's going to pray this prayer three different times. He means it, right? How many of you guys know one time is good enough to get a message to God, but when you pray a prayer three times, you're desperate. Often in the Bible, the word cup represents one's life. And Jesus asks if this cup can be passed, must it be death? God, must it be crucifixion? And God seems to impress upon his own son that there's no other way it's as if the Father is underscoring John six fourteen when it says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Hallelujah. Now Jesus has asked his closest companions to pray with him and for him, but how many of you guys know that a full stomach and a cool evening are deadly companions, right? And they fall asleep. Jesus, he wakes him up a couple of times and tells him to pray, but then, then it's too late. The garden is interrupted by a huge display of armed soldiers who come onto the scene. And there's Judas. He walks up to Jesus and he gives him a Middle Eastern greeting, a kiss. And in Luke twenty-two forty-eight, it says, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? And then before Jesus is taken away, Jesus takes advantage of the setting and he calls out the cowardice of the teachers of the law for their nighttime vigilante actions. In Luke 22, uh, 53, excuse me, it says, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Hallelujah. And we know what he means. There are things that people are more apt to do when it's dark that they would never consider doing when it's light. And the myth is that we think that we can keep it in the dark and hidden from others in God. But the truth is we can't. Amen. So Jesus is led away and John and Peter both follow from a safe distance, but eventually they get separated. And then Peter, who had earlier said that he would die for Jesus, denies knowing Jesus three times. And what transpires for Jesus from about midnight until 9 a.m. is a series of five or six different trials, mock trials we might call them, 
Two of them before uh, the Jewish leaders, Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas had gathered all of the Sanhedrin, which was the religious leadership of the day. He had uh, gathered them together in the middle of the night, which, by the way, was illegal because they were not allowed to meet in the middle of the night. And they immediately trumped up false charges. And then finally, with no evidence, Caiaphas asked Jesus a question. He says, are you the son of God? And Jesus answers, yes. And that's when everything changes. They accuse him of blasphemy. They cover his head. They strike him with fists. And then they take him to Pilate. Why did they do this? Because the Jews were not allowed to execute someone. Because if you remember, Israel was under Roman occupation at the time. And only Roman, only the Romans had the power and authority to decide to execute someone. Now, remember, all of this is taking place through the night, right? When everyone else, all of the good Jewish people were asleep. And so the government offices, they, they didn't open until around 6 a.m. So they're pounding on Pilate's door to make it happen more quickly. They want to get this done before all of the good Jewish people wake up. And he goes from Pilate to King Herod, and then King Herod sends him back on over to Pilate. And this all-night ordeal continues as G, uh, with Jesus as he's bruised this whole time, he's beaten this whole time. And Pilate again and again says that he has done nothing worthy of death. But a crowd has gathered together and the crowd wants something. You see, the religious leaders had infiltrated the crowd. And Pilate offers to have Jesus punished, even though there was no reason to, and and then released. But the religious leaders, they stir up the crowd because they didn't just want a slap on the wrist, right? They wanted blood. And they got it. In fact, they got a lot of it. They beat Jesus. They flogged him. They scourged him. And the soldiers that did the scourging, listen, they were masters at ripping the flesh off of criminals' backs. They enjoyed it. Did you know that two-thirds of the people usually died in the scourging? But not our Jesus. Jesus was no wimp. He was a godly man and he was a manly man. And death at this stage would have left numerous prophecies unfulfilled. And then the Bible has a short phrase in the Gospels, three words, they crucified him. And it doesn't elaborate much more than that because everyone in that time knew what that phrase entailed. It was the most horrific and humiliating and prolonged and painful manner of death that would turn your stomach to even hear about it. We're going to focus on the resurrection of Jesus next week, but today we're going to look at the price that he paid. So I want everyone to do something for a second. I want you to imagine that you are living in the city of Jerusalem a thousand years before the birth of Christ. You can close your eyes if you want to, if that helps you get you in the zone, right? A thousand years before the birth of Christ in the city of Jerusalem, it's, it's a typical morning. Can you guys just hear the birds fluttering? Right? And the gentle breeze through your hair. That's just me. I don't know. Some of you guys don't have hair. The gentle breeze over your skin. It's a typical morning, and I, I want you to hear a sound that they would hear. The crowds, they were hustling and bustling. Everyone was moving, doing their stuff. And they would hear a sound similar to this.
Now, the Israelite nation, they knew that sound well. That's the sound of what we call a shofar. This is a mini one, right? And the one that you heard in the video is much bigger. Here, let me... Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, huh? That's why I chose the video sound. It just wasn't nearly as impressive when I tried it at home. It, and in fact, it scared my daughter. So I was like, I'm not doing that at home anymore. So there you go. You, you heard it once. You never hear me play a shofar again. That's as good as it gets. Um, but this is an instrument made out of a, the horn of a ram. Just so you guys know, it's called a shofar. And it would sound so that everyone in the town would hear it twice a day. Um, once it began to sound everyone would stop. Uh, the merchants in the city, the children playing, the workers, the students, everyone stopped what they were doing and they all grew silent. You might ask why? Why would they grow silent when they heard this loud sound? Well, the sound of a shofar indicated that at that exact moment, a sacrifice was being made to God by the priest. It was a sacrifice being made to God on their behalf. And their silence was an expression of respect and gratitude that there was a sacrifice, a substitute for their sins, a pure and spotless lamb. So thousands of years ago, that's what God was doing when he started the sacrifice system of the shofar and the spotless lamb. I couldn't get a real lamb, so this is what, this is what Amazon had, right? So... Thousands of years ago, that's what God had already started in the culture of the Israelites. God was conditioning his nation, the Jewish people, to understand that sin brings death. Amen. I'm gonna say that one more time so you get it. Sin brings death. So twice a day throughout all of their lifetimes for centuries, it was an ongoing reminder to the Jewish people that there was a cost involved with forgiveness. Now all the while, keep in mind uh, the prophecy of Isaiah about the coming Messiah was that he would bear our sins, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, and that by his stripes we are healed, amen? amen. And remember the words of John the Baptist when he saw Jesus coming to be baptized. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And remember that hundreds of years before Jesus comes onto the scene, the Bible tells us that as a lamb before his shears is silent, so would he be. Jesus is the lamb. And in order to take away our sins, it would cost him his life. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament agree that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So fast forward to that Friday when Jesus was crucified. In Christ's day, the sacrifices had, they had become quite elaborate, right? The lamb would be lifted up, and this is where I'm glad it's not a real lamb, right? And people would watch this ceremony as the priest would sacrifice the lamb. And at, at, at the designated time, as the designated time approached, the priest would stand at the altar and hold a knife to the throat of the lamb. And I decided it probably wouldn't be good to bring a knife up and just scar you guys with that visual, right? And that would be happening. And at the same time, another priest would be standing on the highest point of the temple and in his hands would be the shofar. 
Now, I told you earlier that the sacrifice would be made twice a day, right? But I failed to tell you at what times. You see, the temple had a sundial, and at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m., the signal uh, would be given and the shofar would sound. And every faithful Jew would stop what they were doing because they knew that after that sound of the shofar came the blood of the lamb. Have you ever wondered when the crucifixion, uh, crucifixion began for Jesus? Mark 15, 25 tells us this. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. What are the odds of that? He is put on a cross outside the city at the exact same time that inside the city, the shofar sounds from the highest point and they kill an innocent lamb. Make no mistake, when they sounded the horn, everyone in the city heard that sound. Well, the Bible goes on to tell us that three hours later, as Jesus continues to hang on the cross, that at noon, darkness covers the sky for three hours. What a weird meteorological phenomenon, right? For it to be dark when it should be the brightest outside. But think back to 33 years earlier when the angels announced the Messiah's arrival to a group of groggy shepherds. At Christ's birth, there is brightness at midnight. And at Christ's death, there is darkness at noon. The miracle was reversed. So when exactly did Jesus die? Well, we don't have to guess about that because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us the same time, 3 p.m. Here's the scene on Good Friday. Josephus, the historian, estimates that two million people were pouring into the city that day because it's the Passover holiday. So there's this eeriness in the whole city because it's covered by darkness in the middle of the day. And tons of Jewish pilgrims have come into town to be at the Passover. There's hustle and bustle. People are going about their day and they don't realize what time it is because it's dark until at 3 p.m. they hear that familiar sound. And at that moment, inside the walls of Jerusalem, everyone gets quiet as they know a sacrifice is being made on their behalf. What most of them didn't realize was that the sacrifice was outside the city rather than inside the city. Do you realize what's happened? Jesus didn't just come to serve, Jesus also came to save and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, he hangs on the cross and he fights and he endures, and somehow he makes himself stay alive for six hours hanging on that cross. And at that moment when a lamb is being sacrificed in the city, the lamb of God is being sacrificed outside the city. Just to make certain, certain that you don't miss the significance of this, his final words before he dies are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Now this is three words in English and one word in Greek. What does it is finished mean? It was a merchant's term used in accounting and it means it has been paid. So what he's saying is that the debt has been paid for all of our sins. And now there's a way for us to be given once and for all. And while the shofar is blowing, 
and the Son of God is dying, the temple veil is being torn from top to bottom, signifying that now we have access to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Hey, if you don't think that there is a God who loves you very much, who authored this story, then I would question your logic skills because I think if you examine the evidence, I think it takes more faith not to believe Jesus was the Son of God than to accept that He wasn't His. And by simply putting your trust in Him, you can be saved. Strangely, at the moment of Christ's death, Satan thought that he had won. But the cross wasn't the final chapter. I'm not quite sure you heard me, church. The cross was not the final chapter. This isn't where it ends. Next week, we're going to learn that Jesus conquers the grave. And because he has the power over death, so can those who trust him. But when it comes to sin, I want to make certain that you get this. When it comes to sin, the victory was won on the cross. His blood washes away all of our sins. That's why the book of Revelation says, we will overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Would you forgive us when we gloss over the phrase, they crucified him? Would you help us to always feel the depth of your sacrifice? We thank you for the price that your son paid and that you, God, made in sharing him with the world. Would you help Jesus' death inspire us in how we live our lives? And it's in the wonderful, powerful name of Jesus we pray. Listen, if, if you've never turned your life over to Jesus, you've just heard what he did for you. I think a natural response would be to give your life back to him. Repent of your sin. Believe he is the son of the living God. Humble yourself and declare Jesus' lordship over your life. Then be baptized in water so that you can display to others the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then begin to live for him. Listen, he doesn't expect you to be perfect on your own, but he promises that he will help you get closer and closer to being like him. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm going to ask you to make a personal decision today. Whether it's a decision to, for the first time in your life, give your life over to Jesus and say, I am yours for the rest of my days. What you teach, I will follow. I put myself under your lordship and your kingship. Or maybe you've done that before and you find yourself off of the path, you've fallen off the wagon, and you need to get back on, and you'd like to rededicate your life to Christ today. There's no shame in that. Because God is the God of first and second and third and millionth chances. So with no one looking around, if that's you today, if you want to give your life over to Jesus and say, I'm going to follow him for the rest of my days, for the first time or for the millionth time, could you raise your hand really quick so that you can show to God and show to me that you are ready to follow him with your life? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Come on, there's no better time than the present to lift your hand. If that's you, don't be ashamed. No one else is looking around. You just give your life to Jesus. 
Oh Jesus, we thank you for invading this place this morning. We thank you for being in here this morning, for gracing us with your presence, for paying the price for our sins. We thank you for hanging on that cross for for six hours as you were thinking of each and every one of us. Help us to never forget. Help us to live every day boldly for you. Help us to preach your name and your story every single day that we live, both in our words and in our actions. Would you help us to be the husbands that we're called to be, the wives that we're called to be, the parents that we're called to be, the sons and daughters that we're called to be, the co-workers that we're called to be, the family members that we're called to be, the friends that we're called to be. God, we don't hold back any aspect of our lives from you, but we give it over to you today and we say, have your way. Less of us and more of you is our cry, Jesus. And we pray that in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Amen. I'd like to ask Trin, um, I know you don't have your mic, that's fine. Oh, is there a mic? Yeah, here we go, thank you. It's really like uh, that last song you guys sang today. It's a song called The More I Seek You. And uh, I don't know about for you guys, that song actually has a tremendous amount of meaning to me in my life because the first time I heard that song was when I was giving my life to Jesus at the altar at a summer camp in Montana. And uh, I think that God wants to spend a little bit of time with us here this morning. We have a few minutes. You can sit here. But I want us to sing this song as a church family together, declaring that we just want to be with Jesus. We want to sit at his feet. And we just want to spend time with him. So Trin, can we sing that song? remind you that the presence of God does not leave you when you leave this building. You might feel it in here right now, but when you go out there and you don't feel it in your regular life, He is still with you. So choose every single day 
to sit at his feet, drink from the cup in his hand, lay back against him and breathe and be with your Savior every day. Before you leave today, let me bless you with one last scripture. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything that you need. So if you find yourself in a place of need, a healing touch, provision, restoration in a relationship, two steps. Seek the kingdom of God above everything else. No ifs, ands, buts, no excuses. You put Jesus first in your life. And second, you live righteously. Choose to do what is right every single day. And he has promised that he will give you everything that you need. God, thank you for being here with us this morning. Bless us as we go. Help us to be Christians even outside of this building. Help us to see a mighty wave of revival through this county and through this state, through this country and through this world. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus and we all say, amen. All right, new life. You guys are dismissed. Have a great Sunday.